God, we are in awe of you this morning, of your love and your grace and your mercy in our lives. We're so thankful that when we are weak, you are strong. We're so thankful that when storms and chaos are surrounding us, Lord, you are Jehovah Shalom, the Lord who is our peace. There is none like you. We're so thankful for these times where we get to sit at your feet and worship you and sing our songs of love and praise and gratitude to you. Lord, we long for these days when this is our life, when we get to see you face to face and even cry out as the angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So Lord, we ask that you would continue to be glorified in our service this morning that you'd be glorified in our lives, God. So send the Holy Spirit, the teacher of all things. As we open up your word, we want to know, we want to hear from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one, personally, individually, Lord, that miracles would take place through the teaching of your word this morning, God, that everyone would leave, leaping, rejoicing, smiling, overwhelmed, the fact that the true and living God spoke to them, met them here. And so we give you the rest of the service now. We pray this in Jesus' name. We all say, amen. God bless you guys. You- we turn within your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28, we're looking at verses 23 through 31. It's hard to believe we're finishing our Sunday morning portion of the study of the book of Acts. Uh, As you know, whatever passages we don't cover on Sunday mornings, we go through in our verse-by-verse study on Wednesday nights. So we have a couple more Wednesday nights studies, but this will be our final Sunday morning study in the book of Acts. Something interesting occurred to me recently is when I started this ministry uh, 32 years ago, 1982, um, when? 38 years ago, yeah. It's been a long time. Whenever, when we started this ministry in 82 with about 20 people, we started by studying our way through the book of Acts. Uh, just felt compelled by the Lord that he wants his people to know what the church was originally and what it can be and should be today through the work and power of the Holy Spirit. And now, lo and behold, I didn't plan this, but the final book that I will teach here at this church is the book of Acts. So a reminder of what the church once was and what the church can be and should be today. Uh, I won't be starting a new book because next Sunday we'll we'll have a Thanksgiving message and then we'll have uh, my final message will be two parts on November 29th and December 6th and that will be my last day. So we're going to have a two-part message from... uh, Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, speaking truth in love. We're to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ. To a mature man, to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. How do we get there? Speaking truth in love. So the 29th will be on truth. And then the final message, what better topic uh, on my final message than love? The love 
of God. There abides faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So let's dig into our passage for this morning. Chapter 28, verse 23. When they had set a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God, trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets, from morning until evening. And some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving. After Paul had spoken one parting word, The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet of your father, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn again. And I should heal them. Let it be known to you, therefore, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. And he stayed there two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So, excuse me. Paul had been on trial in the city of Caesarea. He was being accused of sacrilege against the temple and blasphemy against God, both false charges. He was also being accused of sedition and treason against Caesar, also false charges. He knew he wasn't going to get a fair trial in Israel. So he appealed to Caesar. Every Roman citizen had the right to appeal to Caesar. And though he was born a Jew in Tarsus, he was also born a Roman citizen. So he gets to go to Rome. He always wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to preach the gospel in Rome. And now he's going to have the opportunity to bear witness of Jesus Christ to the emperor himself. So He's getting an all-expense-paid trip to Rome, courtesy of the Roman government, since he's a prisoner, but not for the purpose of sightseeing, but for for the purpose of soul-winning. When he gets there, he is not in prison. He's not in a dungeon. He is in his own rented quarters. Uh, He is uh, chained to a Roman soldier, but he has a certain amount of freedom. His friends can come and visit him, and people can come there for Bible studies, Luke mentions in, chapter, or in verse 23 here that he was uh, conducting a Bible study on this particular day from morning until evening. Uh, would love to have been a part of that Bible study. But he was there for two years, verses 30 and 31, in his, in his rented quarters. And what was he doing the whole time? What was his life all about? He was preaching and teaching. He was preaching the kingdom of God. Preaching is proclaiming. Proclaiming, this is what the kingdom of God is. This is what you need to know in order to be a part of that kingdom. But he was also teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Preaching is proclaiming. Teaching is explaining. He was explaining everything they needed to know about the person of Jesus, who he is, and his heart 
and his character, everything he did, and everything he taught so that they would know what it means to be a true follower of Christ. So this is what his life was all about there, preaching and teaching. And that's why we read back up in verse 23. He was explaining, that's teaching, and he was testifying about the kingdom of God that is proclaiming or preaching. But notice what he was doing in verse 23, to persuade people concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean, to persuade people? To convince people, to prove to people beyond a reasonable doubt, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. And what was his approach? What was his method to persuade or to convince people regarding Jesus, going to the writings of Moses and the writings of the prophets. Verse 23, through the law of Moses and through the prophets, he sought to persuade them. In this way, they would be able to see for themselves that everything God said concerning the Messiah centuries before the Messiah would come into the world, would be fulfilled in the life of this one man whose name is Jesus. God wanted to make it so easy for his people to recognize their Messiah. When he comes into the world, you'll be able to easily identify him because here's all the things you will see in his life. Here are all the events that will be fulfilled in his life. This is the exact method Jesus himself used after his death and resurrection when he appeared to those two men on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. And they were sad, and he said, why are you so sad? And they said, well, it's because of this person, Jesus. We were hoping in him that he was our Messiah, but now he's dead. They just killed him, so I guess uh, our hope in him was misplaced. I guess he couldn't be the Messiah. They were expecting the Messiah to come and immediately overthrow the Roman government, establish the kingdom of God on earth and rule and reign upon the earth, which he will do in his second coming. But in his first coming, the Messiah has to make atonement for sin, and and that's what they weren't getting. And so Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer these things? What things? The things those two men had just seen Jesus endure in Jerusalem with their own eyes. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer those things before entering into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them the things in the scriptures concerning himself. He just went through the writings of Moses, whatever Moses said about the coming Messiah, and whatever the prophets said about the coming Messiah, and then their eyes would be open. They would see for themselves, he has to be the Messiah. He's the only one who could be the Messiah. All these things were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Jesus used the same approach to persuade, to convince the two men on the road to Emmaus that he himself is the Messiah. He explained to them all the scriptures concerning himself. Now remember, when Jesus departed from them, what did they say? They looked at each other and they said, did not our hearts burn within us when he explained the scriptures to us? They were seeing from their own scriptures 
Things that they hadn't seen or understood before. Oh yes, I get it now. All those things had to happen because that's the purpose and plan of God. What happened to Jesus here in Jerusalem this past week wasn't a coincidence. It wasn't random chance. It was the purpose and plan of God. And they would be able to see that and understand that by looking at their own scriptures. Did not our hearts burn within us when he explained the scriptures to us? Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced being in a Bible study and the Holy Spirit is just opening up the word of God and there's this thrill and that excitement in your heart? New revelations and insights that are just going to be so useful and helpful to you in your life, in your walk and relationship with the Lord. Oh man, my heart was burning inside me when the scriptures were being explained to me. So Paul is simply using the same approach Jesus used to convince the two men on the road to Damascus that he, Jesus, truly is the Messiah and the Son of God. They were both explaining to those that they were teaching through the writings of Moses and the writings of the prophets. What did Moses have to say about the Messiah? Both Jesus and Paul would have taken those that they were teaching back to the writings of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and and would have started in Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning where sin first enters the world. And sin separates man from God. Adam and Eve were separated from God. That's what sin does. And if we die in that state, we remain eternally separated from God by our sin. So as soon as sin enters the world, God announces his solution for the problem of sin that separates man from God. Remember what Moses wrote? It will be through the seed of the woman. The Savior, the chosen one, the anointed one, the Christ, will come into the world. How? He will be born into the world of a woman. So it will be the seed of the woman and he will crush the head of the serpent. Or the serpent will bruise his heel. Now if you bruise your heel, that's, that's painful. And sure enough, the evil one was able to inflict great pain upon Jesus at the cross of Calvary, but that was all a part of God's plan too. But it was at the cross of Calvary where that promise God made through Moses long ago in the very beginning was fulfilled. Satan was defeated at the cross of Calvary. He bore our sins. Our sins are removed from us. Our sins can never separate us from God. And so we no longer have to worry about the eternal consequences of sin. We also don't have to worry about the power of sin to control our lives. The evil one, the serpent, he's not in control of our lives anymore. And he is not going to be able to take us to hell with him. So Jesus and Paul would have explained that passage of Scripture, how God's plan of salvation was through the seed of the woman. One born of woman would come into the world and solve the problem of sin. Now, Jesus and Paul would have taken those that they were teaching to uh, Genesis chapter 22, because Moses wrote about God's instruction to Abraham to go to a place that God would show him where he would be asked to offer his son, his beloved son, as a sacrifice to God. And God led him to a particular mountain, and it turned out to be Mount Moriah. But 
God wasn't asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. It was a test of faith. He passed the test. Though he didn't understand, he was willing to obey. But when God stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son and provided a ram in the thicket to sacrifice instead, that's when Abraham understood, this is prophetic. This is a powerful prophetic picture of God's plan of salvation for the world. That's why Abraham named the place Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. Abraham said this, the Lord will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. Not the Lord will provide for himself the lamb. The Lord will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And so he said, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And it was. 2,000 years later, do you know what hill is on Mount Moriah? It's a hill called Calvary. It's a hill called Golgotha in Hebrew. It means place of a skull because there's an outline of a human skull on the side of it. But in that very spot, 2,000 years later, a father sacrificed his beloved son, for the sins of the world. Wouldn't you have loved to hear Jesus explain that passage? Wouldn't you lo love to have a CD of that Bible study? Or Paul's Bible study? You'd need two or three CDs because it went from morning till evening. But wouldn't it be great to have heard, heard how Jesus and Paul explained those passages of Scripture? What else did Moses write about the coming Messiah. Jesus and Paul would have had to take taken those who they were teaching to Exodus chapter 12, the final plague, the 10th plague that God sent upon Egypt to finally break Pharaoh's stubborn will that he might release the Hebrews from their bondage and their slavery. What was that 10th plague? The death of the firstborn in every household in all of the land of Egypt. Yeah. It's sad, but that's what it took to break Pharaoh's stubborn will. But that night, the death angel is going to go through the land of Egypt, and the firstborn in every home in Egypt is going to die. So how is God going to protect his people and spare his people from death? He chooses the most bizarre way to save them from death. He instructs them to take a lamb and sacrifice it. Now, of course, after they sacrifice the lamb, they're going to roast it and feast together, family. But they were to take the blood from that lamb and sprinkle it on the doorpost and the cross beam on either side of the entrance to their house. There was to be a blood-stained cross on either side of the entrance to their house. And here's what God said. When the angel of death comes through, he will see the blood, and he will pass over that house. That's why it's called the Passover, which the Jews celebrate every year, because he, he would see the blood, and they would be passed over in judgment, and they would not die. What an incredible, powerful, prophetic picture of salvation. Jesus is that lamb that was slain. He is our Passover lamb. And when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, the blood of Christ is symbolically sprinkled upon us. And at that very moment, we pass 
from judgment into life. The angel will see the blood and pass over. Not the angel will see that everyone in this house is perfectly holy and righteous and pass over. No, no, no. He will see the blood. And as believers, God sees the blood of Christ having washed and cleansed our hearts from sin. And because of the Passover lamp, we are passed over in judgment and spared from death, spiritual death, eternal separation from God. Can you, can you imagine why their hearts burned within them as Jesus was explaining these scriptures? I would love to have heard Paul's explanation of these scriptures. I'm sure you get 10 times more out of it than the way I'm trying to explain it today. What else did Moses say about the coming Messiah? They would have had to go to Deuteronomy 18 where Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like unto me from among your countrymen. You shall listen to him. And it shall come about whoever does not listen to him, whoever shall not listen to my words which, I, which he will speak in my name, I will require it of him. He will be judged and condemned. Moses, writing about the one who would come into the world who was like him. How was Christ like Moses? Moses was the mediator between God and man. He was the intercessor and the mediator. So Moses brought God to man. He brought God's mind and God's heart to man so they could know God. He brought God's laws and commandments to man so that man might know how to live a life pleasing to God in order to enjoy the blessing of God upon their lives. But then Moses brought the people to God as he would pray for them, as he would intercede on their behalf. Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And in that way, he's like Moses. He'll raise up a prophet like me and you shall listen to him. Those who don't listen to him, God will require it of him. Fascinating Bible studies. Let's look at what Moses wrote concerning the Messiah. Your eyes will be open. It will become crystal clear that Jesus is your Messiah and your Savior. But it says, beginning with Moses and then all the prophets in Luke 24. So he wouldn't stop with, with Moses. He would, he would explain the scriptures when the prophets spoke of the coming Messiah. He would have had to go to Isaiah chapter 7. The Lord will provide a sign. God is so good. I'm going to make it easy for my people to identify the Messiah when he comes. The Lord will give you a sign. What was the sign? A virgin shall be with child. That's quite a sign. A woman that's never slept or had intercourse with a man is pregnant and she will give birth to a son and his name shall be called what? Emmanuel, God with us. The son who will be born, his physical existence began then, but he's ex existed eternally with God as God the son, the second person of the triune God. And so, That's quite a sign. <laughs> a virgin shall be with child. Why, why is the virgin birth so important in God's plan of salvation? Why is it critical? 
Because if Jesus had a human father, if he had a biological human father, he would have inherited the sin nature of Adam, just like we have. He, God literally had to be his father, not conceived in the womb of Mary by the seed of man, but conceived in the womb of Mary by the spirit of God so that God could literally be his father so that he could inherit the divine nature. That's what makes it possible for Jesus to resist every temptation and to live his entire life without sin. That's the only way he could be our savior. The concept of salvation is the sins of the guilty are transferred on to the innocent one. That's what this sacrificial lamb was all about, that innocent lamb. The sins of the people transferred onto the innocent lamb who was slain in place of the people. So Jesus had to live a perfect sinless life in order to become our savior so that our sins, the guilty, those sins could be transferred onto the innocent one and we could be free and we could be forgiven. So he would have explained the passage about the prophecy of the virgin birth. He would have had to have taken them to Isaiah chapter 53, where the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Christ is born, explains that the Messiah will have to suffer and die, and why he will have to suffer and die. You read Isaiah 53, if you didn't know better, you think you're reading the New Testament. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our well-being fell upon him. All we like sheep have gone astray, each to his own way. But God laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's New Testament truth, but it's found in the Old Testament. I had a young man uh, come to our house a couple weeks ago to fix our garage door, you know, got to get the house ready to sell, you know, and, and so got to get the garage door fixed. And so he comes in and he takes a look at it and he goes, oh, it's the motherboard in the motor, you know, uh, the part itself is $250, the total cost will be $450. And my immediately thought is, thank you very much, I will get a second opinion. <laughs> no way! Uh, I'm going to spend that much money to, you know, fix the garage door. But then as we were talking, I find out that he's Jewish and he was born and raised in Israel and he's only been in the United States for a couple of years. And I say a quick prayer and I say, Lord, if you're going to open up an opportunity to share the gospel with him, I will gladly pay that $450. And sure enough, I said, so you're Jewish, you're from Israel. Yeah, so you believe in God, right? He said, yeah, I do, but I'm not a practicing Jew. I said, well, there's a couple interesting things I'd love to show you about your own religion, and it's because of the Hebrew Scriptures that I believe in Jesus. Did you know Christianity isn't a different religion from Judaism? Christianity is just God fulfilling all the promises he made to Israel. That's all it is. Uh, would it be okay if I showed you something? And he, just, he was so interested. He was so open. He let me go get my Bible. I showed him, I read through Isaiah 53, how the Messiah is going to have to suffer and die for the sins of the people. It sounds like the message of Christianity, and it is. It's just the fulfillment of what God said would happen through the Hebrew prophets. He will be cut off from the land of the living. What does that mean to you? Well, he's not in the land of the living. He must be dead. He's going to have to suffer 
and die. And his eyes just kept getting bigger and bigger. So I'm showing, explaining these scriptures to him. It's very persuasive. It's how we can persuade people, convince people of who Jesus is. And then I said, um, you were raised in Israel. You see the Christian tours going to all the holy sites all day long, every day. Where do the Christians believe Jesus was born? And he said, oh, that's an easy one, Bethlehem. They all go to Bethlehem. I said, did you know that your prophet Isaiah predicted where the Messiah would be born 700 years ahead of time? He said, no. I flipped over to Micah 5 too and read to him, but thou Bethlehem, though thou be little among the nations. <laughs> you think the Messiah would be born in a big important city? No, a small village. You think it was really a coincidence that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Thou Bethlehem, though thou be little among the nations, yet out of thee shall he come forth who is to be ruler among my people. The Messiah, the King of the Jews, will be born in Bethlehem, whose goings forth are from everlasting. His existence doesn't begin when he's born. That's when his physical existence began. He's the eternal God in human form. And that's not just Christianity. That's Judaism. That's what your prophet said. I said, did you ever hear the story about when Jesus came riding into a donkey into Jerusalem and the crowds were cheering and proclaiming him to be the Messiah? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the Lord. He goes, yeah, I know that story. He, he rides in on a donkey. I said, yeah, did you know even that was prophesied and spoken by God centuries before Jesus came? And I just flipped over to Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. He is humble, riding on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'm showing you these scriptures. His eyes, I didn't think a person's eyes could get that big. His eyes just keep getting bigger and bigger. And, and he's just being overwhelmed, persuasive, being convinced. There's a few more passages I wanted to take him to, but I didn't have time. He had to get some work done. And when it was all over, he wasn't ready to make his decision for Christ, but he did agree that he wanted to attend a Christian church and find out more about Jesus. I said, after 20, 25 minutes of sharing all these things, what Jesus shared with those two men, what Paul shared with these people in Rome, my heart was so full of joy. I said, God, that was worth every penny of the $450 I would have to spend on this garage door. I didn't even have time to take him to Daniel chapter 9, where God pinpointed the time period in history when the Messiah would be on the earth. An incredible prophecy. Daniel chapter 9. From the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah will be 483 years. God has preserved the historical record, the document. We know when that decree was issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem by Artaxerxes in uh, March 14th, 445 B.C. All we have to do is starting from that date, count 483 years. Messiah should be here. If you want to get real specific, that's 173,880 days to the day. You know what that day was in history? April 6, 32 A.D. 
the day that God introduced his son to Israel as the Messiah, the day of the triumphal entry, and the crowds are cheering, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the religious leader said, Jesus, these people are proclaiming you to be the Messiah, the Son of God. Tell them to shut up. Tell them to be quiet. And Jesus said, if these would hold their peace, even the rocks would cry out. Because this is the day the Lord has made and announced long ago, we will rejoice and be glad in it. And so the very method Jesus used to prove to these two men that he indeed is the Messiah, every prophecy of the Messiah fulfilled in his life. The very method Paul used in this all-day-long Bible study, law of Moses, the writings of Moses, the writings of the prophets. And then we get to verse 24, and it says, some were persuaded and some would not believe. It doesn't say they could not believe. God made it easy for his people to believe. Hard evidence, overwhelming evidence for faith in Jesus as the Christ. So it's not that they could not believe. It's easy to believe once you examine the evidence. It's that they would not believe. So why is it when when people see the overwhelming evidence, and they know deep in their heart it's true, that they won't believe and they won't commit their life? They love the darkness better than the light, for their deeds are evil. They don't want to give up a sinful lifestyle. They they know they would have to turn from the pleasures of sin if they're going to be a follower of Christ. They don't want to do that, and that's what the judgment will be all about. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness better than the light, for their deeds are evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light lest their deeds should be exposed. So some people, even though they will listen and they will look at the evidence, they will choose not to accept and not to believe. And then there are people who won't even listen to the evidence. They won't allow you to talk to them about the Lord. You just bring up, mention the word God. No, 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 no. Don't talk to me about God. I don't want to hear anything about it. Well, you don't even want to look at the evidence for faith that God has provided to make it so easy for us to be, no, don't talk to me about God. And yet they'll listen all day long to the enemies of Christ talk about Jesus and assail his character and mock him. They'll listen to the enemies of Christ all day long to what they have to say about the person of Jesus Christ when they don't even know him. They've never read the gospel. They don't know anything about Jesus. And yet they won't listen to the ones who know him, who have read the Gospels, know what he did, know what he taught. That would be like if you wanted to get to know me. Who is Brad Young? What is Brad Young like? And then you just, you're just willing to listen to my enemies who tell you what a terrible person I am and what terrible things I have done, whether they may be true or not. But you refuse to listen to my family members and my close friends who know me the best. They'll tell you. <laughs> All the flaws and all the faults, they'll be honest with you and then they'll tell you the good qualities too. But how foolish to refuse to listen to those who know me the best. Can you imagine a jury in a courtroom that says, don't, don't bother with the trial, we don't need to look at any of the evidence. We can tell by looking at him, he's guilty. How sad. So many people, they're gonna make a judgment call about the person of Jesus Christ, they know nothing about him except what the enemies of Christ have told them. 
What could be more foolish than rendering a judgment about a person without knowing them, without reading the Gospels? I would encourage you today, if you haven't made your decision for Christ, make an informed decision. If you, if you have a Bible, if you don't, ask us. We'll gladly give you one. Read the Gospel of John. Just a half an hour a day for two or three days, you read through the Gospel of John. Now you can make an informed decision to accept or reject based upon what you know to be true about the person of Jesus Christ. And when you read about the things he did, and you read the teaching of Christ concerning all the important issues of life, it will be very, very easy to believe. God has made it easy for us to believe once we examine the evidence. And so, in conclusion, bottom line, it's about the kingdom of God. He loves you, and he wants you to dwell with him in his kingdom now and forever. But there's also the kingdom of darkness, and you can choose to belong to the kingdom of darkness and live your life in darkness. But if you do, then you will dwell eternally in the kingdom of darkness, outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, and all those who are spending eternity there know that they chose it. They chose it, and it is not what God wanted for them. Jesus loves you. He proved his love for you on the cross of Calvary. Look, this is how much I love you. I've done everything necessary for you to escape hell and go to heaven. Look at Jesus hanging on the cross and saying, you will go to hell over my dead body. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us of the best, easiest, most powerful way to convince people, Jesus, that you are Lord. You are the Christ, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. Thank you, Lord, that we get to know you and be part of your kingdom. Would you give us a heart of ministry? Even as Paul was in Rome as a prisoner, and so he just recognized that that was his mission field at that time. And he produced so much fruit, writing several letters, the pastoral epistles, that would bring instruction and encouragement and comfort and life to tens of millions of people all over the world through the centuries. And that he wrote the book of joy, the book of Philippians, when he was a prisoner, practicing what he preached, that we should rejoice always.
And again I say, rejoice. And how he was able to write to the Philippians and tell them, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Lord, that thrills our hearts. Born again, spiritful believers in Caesar's own household just because Paul was there, just because you placed Paul there and made that his mission field for a time. Lord, would you help us to recognize that wherever you've placed us, that's our mission field? That you didn't give us the job that we have just to bless us so we could provide for our families, but you've given us a mission field and there will be people there. Many will not want to hear us talk about the Lord, but some will. And some will get their questions answered and some will come to know you. Others will return to you and rededicate their lives to you. And oh, what joy will fill our hearts in that day, Lord, when someone approaches us in heaven and says, I'm thanking God for eternity that you got a job at that company. I'm here in heaven because of the influence you had upon my life for Christ. To recognize our neighborhood as our mission field, Lord, that you're in control. You're orchestrating the events of our lives. You didn't just bless us with a home so we could have a place to sleep. You gave us a mission field, Lord. Help us to recognize that you've entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. Knowing that there will be neighbors that won't want to hear what we have to say about the Lord, but some will. What unspeakable joy will fill our hearts when we discover that there are people in heaven forever because you placed us in that neighborhood. Lord, help us to see the softball team that we play on as not just a, a fun thing that you blessed us with, but a mission field. In the bowling league and whatever else we're doing, wherever we are, that that's our mission field whether it's a time in our lives when we're struggling, a time in our lives when we're uncomfortable, a time in our lives when we're miserable, our lives can still bear much fruit for your glory. So make us preachers and teachers, Lord, proclaiming your kingdom and explaining to people who Jesus is. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to open your heart and, and receive Christ today, make Him your Lord and your Savior, your sins will be washed away. You will be clean. He will make you whiter than snow. And you will receive the free gift of eternal life. He's offering you a deal that's pretty hard to turn down. You give me your sin, Jesus is saying, and I'll take it on myself and I'll pay for it all. And in exchange, I'll give you my righteousness. So you will immediately pass from judgment into life because when God looks at you, he'll see the righteousness of Christ forever. From this moment on, forever, he will see you as if you have never sinned. That's the good news. Maybe you thought Christianity was all about, well, if I follow Christ closely enough and if I'm holy enough and if I have enough good works, he might accept me into heaven. 
I don't know about you, that's not good news for me. That's bad news. That tells me I'm not making it. It's not by works, it's by faith. It's not by the law, it's by grace. When you open your heart and receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. If you'd like to do that, whether you're here today in this room or watching live stream, just pray this prayer after me. Dear Lord Jesus, I've sinned. I've fallen short of your righteousness. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me. Thank you, Jesus, for suffering and dying for me. I believe in you. I receive you now as my Lord and as my Savior. Come into my heart. Wash me and cleanse me from all sin. I receive your forgiveness. I receive the free gift of eternal life. Fill me with the Holy Spirit that I might live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.